Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now it's time to talk about labor's last stand. The Supreme Court on Monday heard arguments in a case that could cripple public employee unions. For that, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's an organizer, author, and contributor to The Nation. Her first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, was named the most valuable book of the year by The Nation. Her second book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, was released in 2016, and now she's working on her third. It's called Striking Back, and it's about organizing power and strategy. It's forthcoming from Verso. She's a regular commentator on radio and TV, and she continues to work as an organizer on union campaigns. She leads contract negotiations. She trains and develops organizers. Jane McAlevey, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's terrific to be here. Well, the case the Supreme Court heard Monday is called Janus versus AFSCME, maybe the biggest threat to the labor movement we've seen, I don't know, maybe in our lifetimes. It targets public sector unions, could make it much harder for working people everywhere to organize for better wages and benefits and working conditions. Tell us about the case. The case itself, um, Janus is someone named Mark Janus. He is, uh, you know, a worker in the state of Illinois, um, who decided to take up this lawsuit, but by the way, with you know millions of dollars of backing from something called the National Right to Work Legal Foundation. Um, so Mark Janis is, a, is a, an employee. He works in the state sector in the state of Illinois and is a, uh, you know, was not even a member. He was already something called an agency fee payer, which I'll explain in a minute, but he's a worker in the state of Illinois who decided uh, not necessarily on his own, if you look at the actual track record and even his interviews, to sue his union to be released from having to pay what's called an agency fee. Now, I want to get the legalisms out of the way because this case is so much bigger than the details. In fact, right. I'm, going to argue, I'm going to argue that the case is a fundamental attack on American democracy, for real. Um, but the legalisms of it are this. Essentially, and, and I wrote about this in The Nation, right, in an article in 2011, um, where I said, 
look, the, the, the hyper-extreme, the extreme right wing that now is in control, frankly, of our, you know, largely in control of our federal government as well as many state governments, a very extremist faction of the, you know, what we're much more extreme than we're used to in my lifetime, right? The forces that put Trump into office, including the National Rifle Association, uh, the Koch brothers, the Mercers, a very well-funded um, 1% billionaire class that's been bankrolling this case, the Janus case, and many like it. It's, it's a fundamental attack on not just workers' rights, but really American democracy. And, but here's what it is. Here's the actual definition of the case itself. So Janus works for the state of Illinois, um, and he decides he doesn't believe in trade unionism, he doesn't like his union, uh, he doesn't become a member, because it's very important to understand, most people in America don't understand this right now, even in states like Illinois, New York, California, etc., workers don't have to become members in what's called the public sector um, at all right now. They can choose to pay what's called an agency fee. What an agency fee is, which is not the same thing as being a member of a union and paying dues, an agency fee, which was created by something called the Abood decision, which we'll come back to, in 1977, an agency fee essentially lets someone say, I object to the political work that this union is engaged in. I don't believe, I don't support, maybe I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a hardcore Republican or something, or I don't believe that my union should endorse any political candidate, Democrat or Republican. I don't want to have to contribute to the political arm of my union. So back in 1977, in a ruling called Abood versus the Detroit Board of Education, a Supreme Court ruling back in 1977, in the Abood case, which, is, which we thought was settled law for the last 40-plus years, apparently not anymore. That's what's at issue really in the Janus case. In the Abood ruling, they said, okay, we hear you. Because of the system called exclusive, um, exclusive representation in America, where one union essentially represents workers in one workplace, one type of worker in the workplace, um, we'll give you an out. You won't have to pay dues. You can choose to become what's called an agency fee payer, which means we'll subtract. Essentially, it usually winds up to being about a third. We'll subtract about a third off the top of what would be membership dues because that's the amount of money that the court in 1977 decided was going towards politics in any union. So the worker won't have to pay this, essentially the political portion of their dues. It's not even called membership. It's simply called an agency fee. And the idea is that as a worker in a state agency where there's a union, you, that worker is benefiting from positive aspects of collective bargaining and of having a trade union, even if they disagree with the political agenda of the union. Yes. So Mark Janus was what's called an agency fee payer already. He was not compelled to be a member of the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees Union, AFSME, um, which is the union that he, was an he is an agency fee payer to. He's going further. And by the way, again, he's going further with a ton, like millions of dollars of legal support from um, extremely conservative right wing, I would argue anti-democratic, certainly anti-trade union forces in this country, and that's the Koch brothers, the Mercers, the, the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, the Bradley Foundation. These are massive moneyed interests putting millions into this case and cases just like it with the sole purpose, frankly, of destroying workers' rights and destroying trade unions. And that's what's at stake in the Janus case. This is likely to pass the Supreme Court five to four. That means California, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, and so on are going to become, 
because of the constitutional rights of Mark Janus, right-to-work states. What we've seen in states that switched to right-to-work laws, like Wisconsin, public sector union membership fell by something like half after the state's Republican leadership passed laws like this. Why would so many workers leave their unions under these circumstances, and what can unions do to prevent that from happening now? Yeah, two things. There are two things, and I and I definitely want to and I want to talk about this. But I want to. There's one key thing that relate that sort of joins the two ideas. So, let me just say that that Abood again. What's at issue in the Janus ruling is overturning something called the Abood A B O O D uh, versus Detroit Board of Education. That's the 1977 Supreme Court case that Janus seeks to upend. I just. I, I, this is so related to what unions need to do to be able to rebuild and survive and, frankly, thrive, um, even if there's a 5-4 ruling. And what it is is this. The Supreme Court is absolutely affected by the social conditions that are taking place around it. There is no question that though we might think of those nine justices as free of political influence and societal influence, you know, every every indication, every real historical account on the Supreme Court, we understand that our courts are influenced by broader social conditions. Part of why the Supreme Court in 1977 made the decision that it made, that it essentially said the state has a compelling interest to have labor peace. That's what a boot was. That's where the agency fee, the fair share fee, that's where this comes from in the 1977 ruling. And what unions were doing leading up to the 1977 case that, that was a huge victory for trade unions and working-class people in 1977 in the Abood ruling, the reason why working-class folks won in 1977 in the Supreme Court is because the social conditions around the court were very different. Because trade unions, which were filled with people of color, public sector trade unions are <laughs> government jobs are still the best source of good-paying, fair, decent jobs for African Americans and people of color in this country. It's always been true, and it's still true. So in the 2011 article, by the way, I point out that this is also an attack on directly on African Americans and people of color, which we know there's a multifaceted attack on people of color as well in this country right now. So these are all stitched together. They're not separate. Like, what I'm trying to do is get people not to see this as a union case, but in terms of what unions need to do um, to, to rebuild faith, and to hold membership, despite the fact that members will have the right to drop the union, um, we assume that's going to happen in a 5-4 to four ruling, in the Janus ruling, unions have to go back to, to fundamentally understanding that the purpose of the union is to enable and teach working-class people in this country how to effectively fight to defend themselves, their families, and make a high quality of life. That's really what the root of trade unionism is. And, what's, and so in the 1960s and 70s, you know, the public sector trade unions came into being on the back of the power of, frankly, the civil rights movement. It's the civil rights movement that essentially gives us public sector trade unionism starting in the 1950s and 1960s. It's a direct historical line between the growth of the civil rights movement and then the state-by-state passage of uh, state-level collective bargaining laws that enabled public sector unionism. So the civil rights movement exploded into public sector unionism. The women's rights movement that was built on the heels of the civil rights movement in the early 1970s, late 1960s, explodes into public sector unionism. In the 1960s and 70s, there are strikes, there are rank-and-file strikes going on in the public sector all over the United States. So the, 
the state had what they called a compelling interest in the Abood ruling to create labor peace. Well, part of the problem for the last 40 years in this country is that unions are no longer using the strike weapon. So they don't see a compelling interest right now to keep labor peace. In fact, unions have from the inside out sort of become less militant, become less rank-and-file driven, and as a result of that, that's why we have the Janus debate we're having right now, and that's why the Supreme Court could have the the sort of social capital to overturn a 40-year settled law called a boot. It's because unions, part of the problem here is that unions ourselves, and I put myself in that, of course I'm a member, and I've also been a trade union leader, um, we have to allow and enable the rank and file to get back into a high militancy moment like we're seeing in West Virginia right now with the teacher's strike. It, it was those kind of conditions that led to the Abood decision in 1977 and a big win for the working class in the 1977 Supreme Court case, whereas today we're facing a major loss because we have let trade unions become something like a Geico car insurance plan. We ourselves in the public sector unions have become guilty of allowing something called business unionism, of allowing the union to function more like an insurance agency for workers when they get in trouble than, uh, frankly, understanding that the role of a trade union is to enable and coach and teach workers themselves how to fight for greater dignity on the job and greater dignity in our society. So these social conditions matter a lot. When I, so I worked in, I had the pleasure of leading a union in a right-to-work state, which is, again, part of the article I first wrote about in The Nation, and it's certainly the subject of both of my books, is about how do we live in a right-to-work state? How do we build strong unions in a right-to-work state? I can only say... Um, because I had the benefit of doing it, that we can absolutely maintain high membership in a right-to-work context. So we did it in Nevada. The Unite Here, um, which is the casino workers in Nevada, did it in Nevada. The Carpenters Union did it in Nevada. There were three unions, and I was, and I was helping to lead a big SEIU union in Nevada at that time. And three unions built an incredibly robust high participation, high membership union in a right-to-work environment, which is sort of what they're trying to do with the Janus decision. Um, so it's totally possible. It means you have to trust the rank-and-file. It means you have to open up negotiations. You have to allow the rank-and-file into negotiations. It means the agency of the union has to be found in the rank-and-file membership. When the leadership engages the ordinary rank-and-file in the life, in the very life of the union, in contract talks, in politics, in how we think about administering what's called the union contract day-to-day in the workplace. When union leaders enable and encourage rank-and-file participation, they will, in fact, be able to hold high membership in a right-to-work environment. What scares me more, John, to be perfectly candid in this environment, is that there is, this is really important, there is, there is an argument in a couple of the briefs in the Janus case that have gotten no attention. And in these briefs, you can see that a potential compromise would be something like this. We allow unions to continue to collect agency fees, but we constrain and literally narrow the definition of what a union is and what is allowed and permissible in collective bargaining. That's the potential other outcome of this case. And frankly, as a chief negotiator, as an organizer, as someone who has worked with hundreds of thousands of workers to win terrific contracts in their lifetime, often by involving either a threat of a real strike or holding a real strike, I'm much more concerned 
about the potential constraining effect on collective bargaining than I am about losing agency fee payer status. So there are very, very big threats coming in this one Supreme Court case. People are too focused on the question of fair share or agency fee and are, and are missing the much, much deeper threats that are all around the briefs in the Janus case, which is fundamentally an attack on workers' right to collective bargaining in the public sector and in the private sector. Jane McAlevey, she wrote about labor's last stand for the nation.com. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.